Well, let me start by reading you a poem. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had fought no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men, who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late they grieved it on its way, do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men, near death, who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay, rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Dylan Thomas wrote that poem for his dying father. Caitlin Thomas, Dylan's uh, wife, said of DJ Thomas that he was the most unhappy man I have ever met. It showed in his face. He was unhappy with his life. It was exactly the kind of life that he'd hoped not to have. And by the end, he could feel himself sinking back into the very existence that he'd sought to escape. And confronted with his father's decline and old age and the imminence of his death, Dylan Thomas wrote this passionate poem about the dying of the light and saying, fight against it to the bitter end. And Dylan Thomas's own story in his own life was a relentless, tragic quest for life. It was as if he was grasping for it, reaching out for it, trying to live life in all its fullness, trying to achieve immortality through his work and poetry, but it always seemed to evade him. And so he drank himself to death. On a speaking tour in the United States, he forced himself to continue working and working, although he was very sick, and he carried on drinking heavily. Among his last words was the immortal line, I've had 18 straight whiskies. I think that's the record. Soon after, he slipped into a coma and was dead in five days. Dylan Thomas, a great Welsh poet, was 39 years old. He craved life, but in the end, he destroyed it. And you know, we all crave life. We all want life. We're all looking for it, holding on to it. Unless we're really sick or mentally depressed, we crave and yearn for life. We want it to go on and we want it to get better. And by life, I think we mean two things. We mean time and abundance. Time. How long is a good life? How long is a good innings? When I was 14 years old, my dad told me the story of a, an English businessman. This businessman was doing business on a trip in Germany, and he was attending the Frankfurt Beer Festival with his friends. And during the evening, they had a fantastic meal. And they were, they were drinking these big flagons of beer that they have in, in, in Germany. And they got up on the table and they were singing songs and dancing and cheering. And this man, this businessman, had a massive heart attack there on the table. And he fell down dead. 60 years old. And I remember at the age of 14 thinking, 60 is really old. 
And I remember thinking about that man, well, you know what? That's not such a bad way to go, is it? Celebrating with your friends. 60. Now, let me tell you, 60 is only 16 years away from me now. 30 years have gone past, and another 16, that'll be gone in a flash. And so I'm now holding out for a little bit longer. And some members of this church may agree that 60 is no age at all. Amen. <laughs> One or two may even say that 60 is on the young side. Can I get an amen? No one's going to run up to it. You see, we want life. And we want time to enjoy it, don't we? And the brevity of life is such a shock. If you've seen a loved one pass, you know this all too well. We want to live. I want to live. I want to see my children grow up. I want to see them get married. I want to see their children. In 1965, the rock, British rock band The Who released a song called My Generation. In the song, there's a great line in the chorus. It says, I hope I die before I get old. That was in 1965. This is, here's The Who now. Do you know The Who are still singing that song? my generation. And this year they've announced it's going to be their final tour. 50 years on. The band has been together for 50 years. They're actually pensioners. Both these guys are in their 70s and they're still singing I hope I die before I get old. No you don't. You want life. You want it to keep going. You want more time. Don't you agree? We want time to live in this wonderful world. We want more time but we don't just want time. We actually want something else as well. We want abundance. Abundance. Have you heard of the legend of the wandering Jew? The legend of the wandering Jew. It began to spread around Europe in the 13th century. And in this tale, it's a fictional story. A Jewish man taunted Jesus on the cross. And he was then cursed to walk the earth until the second coming of Jesus. Maybe thousands of years. Doomed to wander the earth uh, making his way as best as he can, living in misery until Jesus returns. According to the legend, he is now nearly 2,000 years old and is a travelling shoemaker. He outlived all his loved ones and his life dragged on for hundreds and hundreds of years, mending shoes. Now, that's no life, is it? It might be very long, but it's very dull. We may want more time, but we want it to be quality time. At least once a week, I go to my local newsagent to buy some milk and have a theological discussion. The shopkeeper is a wonderful man. He is much loved by the, the local community, and he is a devout Mancunian Muslim. A couple of weeks ago, I asked him, are you looking forward to heaven? And he said, oh, yes. So I said, well, what are you looking forward to? And his first resp response was very surprising. He said... Seeing the Almighty with my own eyes at last, the pleasure of seeing him. And then he said, meeting the prophets, enjoying good company, getting to do some of the things that we can't do here. Muslim men, he said, don't, can't wear gold or silk, but in heaven we'll be able to do that. I guess that means enjoy the finer things of life. And then he paused and he looked around the, uh, the shop, the newsagents, and he said to me with a twinkle in his eye, it has to be better than this. It has to be better than this. You see, his hope is really the hope of life. Abundant life. He's not really holding out to run a newsagent for eternity. 
He wants a life that's rich and good and beautiful and shining and glorious, fulfilled. We want life, meaning we want time and abundance, I think. And when life is lost or taken away, we feel a loss and a grief that is sharper than anything else on the planet. We all want life, but here's the question. How can we get it? How can we get that kind of life? Now, the answer of religion is keep the rules. They say in preaching class you should never point because it's, uh, it's too aggressive. But when I'm talking about religion, I can do it. Keep the rules. Do your duty. Be as righteous as you can. Be good because you know you should. Then and only then, God or the gods may let you into heaven if you're good enough. And you may experience life there. Now, the opposite to that answer is the answer of irreligion. Irreligion, the opposite of religion, or the secular answer. The secular vision of life is this. You get life by self-definition. Self-definition. You have to know yourself, understand your own needs, and construct a world around yourself that is pleasing to you. And as long as you don't hurt anyone, you can do whatever you damn well please. But you must, you must, you must be happy in this life, because it's all you've got. Happy on your own terms. Self-definition. Now, neither of these two visions actually works. The vision of religion or the vision of irreligion. But there is a third way, and it's the way of the Bible. It's the way of the gospel. And the Bible's answer is different from both of these. According to the Bible, it is possible to have abundant life that goes on forever. But not by keeping the rules. And not by radically self-defining. But by believing in Jesus Christ. By believing in Jesus Christ. The only way, according to the Bible, that we can have that kind of life that we all want is by believing in Jesus, the Messiah. And I got that answer from the Gospel of John. If you want to turn back to chapter 20, we'll read this uh, little section again. John chapter 20, uh, which is on page 1090 of those church Bibles, the English ones. John is one of the most profound and beautiful parts of the Bible, and reading John is like climbing Mount Everest. Breathtaking, massive, spectacular views from the top, and you have to take some deep breaths on the way. With such a monumental book, where are we going to begin to understand it? Well, the answer, fortunately, is that the author has left the key at the back door. If ever you've lost your key, you know, and somebody says, don't worry, that we've hidden one at the back door. Well, the key to John is hidden at the back door here in chapter 20. And on page 1090. And you know what? Our, our Bible, even here, has a, a little extra heading written on it. The purpose of John's gospel. So there it is. Uh, here's the key. And I'm going to ask the youth group a question in a minute. I know you're in here. And I'm going to, you're going to be tested to see if you're still listening with two questions. Are you with me? They're not so sure. Some of them are nodding. Some are looking worried. What is the purpose of John's book? John 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right, youth group. Why has John written these things down? Verse 31. One at a time, please. So that we may believe in the Son of God 
let's hear it for Sam Horlock. Well done. And I'm going to ask the other three, what is the promise if you believe in Jesus? What is promised at the end of that? Well done, William Tyndall. You'll have life in his name. So this is how you get life. By believing in Jesus Christ, you get life in his name. Now, the phrase in his name needs a little bit of unpacking for us. Because in the ancient world, the name of a person was more than just their name. The name represented everything about them. The name represented the whole person. It was all that they stood for. So saying you can have life in Jesus' name is saying having life through Jesus, through who he is and what he's done, what he's achieved. So who is Jesus? What has he done? Well, go back to the beginning of the book. We're going to answer, start to answer that question today. John chapter 1. Jesus towers over world history. More books have been written about him than anyone else in history. More schools, colleges and universities have been founded in the name of Jesus than anyone else. His biographies are the biggest selling books in the world and have been translated into more languages. More pictures have been painted of him. More music has been composed in his honour. The Missionary Aviation Fellowship, a Christian missions airline, goes to more destinations than anywhere else in the world, any other airline. Jesus towers over history, but who is he? The answer to that question in John chapter 1 is way, way back. John goes back to before the human physical birth of Jesus, and he goes back to the ultimate backdrop, which is the beginning of creation, and then he even goes further back than that. He goes back earlier than Genesis chapter 1. It's about as early as you get, okay? So he's saying... I'm going to introduce Jesus to you, and he starts off by not even calling him Jesus, he starts by calling him a different name, which is this word, logos, or, that's the Greek, logos. In English, the closest we've got is the word, word. Word, or like word, speech in action. And here it is, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the logos, or the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light is shining. In the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I've just got two main points here about this, this short section Jesus' identity and Jesus' activity. Jesus' identity and Jesus' activity. Jesus' identity, first of all, John says that the word Jesus was with God, intimate, close, as close as you can get, with God in the beginning. Now, in the beginning is the same phrase that the Bible begins with. It's a great way to start a book, isn't it? In the beginning. The first words of Genesis chapter 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, the Bible insists that there was, there was a time when there was God and there was nothing else. There was nobody else. There wasn't, as in the, the Greek mythology, a pantheon of gods sort of hanging out and getting into fights and drinking and then deciding to make the world. There was just God, the maker of heaven and earth. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. At the beginning, before hydrogen and helium and stars and galaxies, God was already there. 
and he was one. So John's sentence is pretty startling, isn't it? He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word was. He didn't come about at some point. God didn't think, oh, yeah, I need this word to get things going. Let's create him. No, this word was with God all the way along. He just, he never began. He just was. There was never a time when he was not. Jesus, the word, doesn't have a birthday. From all eternity, he was with God the Father. John is saying that Jesus, who at a certain moment in human history could have been found wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger, crying and burping, sleeping and breastfeeding and doing all other baby stuff, that that little scrap of humanity was with God before anything else was made. Now, is John trying to move the goalposts a bit here? He's thinking, you know what, monotheism hasn't worked out. I need to introduce a second character. We need this word. No, because in the very next sentence, he affirms that there's only one true God. Because he says, the word who was with God, the word was God. This is the grandest possible claim for Jesus Christ. Not only was he there with God in the beginning, but he actually is God as well. Whatever God was, the word was. Whatever God was in his divinity, in his deity, this word was. He's fully God. The great God, the maker of heaven and earth. John says that Jesus, the word, is that God. Full identification. But he's also careful to say that the word is also distinct from God. He doesn't want us to miss this, so he says it again in verse 2. He was with God in the beginning. He's trying to make things as plain as possible to us in language that is creaking under the weight that it's trying to bear, that the reality of God is much bigger than any of us probably ever realized before. This word, Jesus, was fully God, yet also distinct from him. He was with God, but he also is God. Now, how can we put that together? Theologians find it helpful to talk about the way that Jesus talked about himself. Jesus referred to God as my father and himself as the son. So it's useful to think of God the father and God the son. But it's not a father and son in the kind of relationship that we normally think of, where the father at some point fathers the child, the son, because we've just read that the word Jesus was always in existence. But the father-son language starts to help us grasp this amazing concept that God is one, yet he has more than one person in him. There are three persons, in fact. The third one isn't mentioned here. And they all share a common nature. The father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are all equally God, and yet they're all distinct persons. And notice the, the family language, the relationship type language, father, son, with each other for all eternity. Now it is vital for us Christians, and most of us here are Christians, to grasp this because there's a pressure on us these days to try and smooth over the differences between Christianity and other faiths. And the pressure is particularly being felt with Islam. There's some people, and I think their motives may well be... Um, 
worthy. They want to try and build bridges between Christians and Muslims, and that's a worthy project, isn't it? We all want good relationship. We all want reconciliation. But we can't have that at the expense of truth. See, our God is radically different from Allah. Allah is one. He's a solitary being. Before the creation of the world, he was lonely for all eternity. There was nobody else except Allah. But the God of the Bible is not a monad, one entity, solitary, but three in one. His nature is unique. He is, in fact, a tri-unity of three persons. Three in one, a tri-unity or trinity. And this means that he was never alone. He was always in relationship. Father always loved the Son. Father and Son always loved the Spirit. He's always known what love is. Who did Allah love before the creation of the world? Only himself. Whereas the God of the Bible has always been in loving, happy relationship with the other persons. He's sort of sensing the difference there. Right the way down, there's a fundamental difference between Christianity and Islam. It's not that we sort of believe the same thing, but Christians have got a weird bit of icing on the top called the Trinity. Our God is Trinity all the way down. There never was a time when God the Father was not a father. There never was a time when Jesus was not the Son. There never was a time when there was no Holy Spirit. The identity of Jesus, the Word. So in a few words, John has sketched Jesus' identity, and now he turns to his activity. And again, he tells us two things. Firstly, Jesus made it all. He made it all. It is said that there are about 100 billion stars in the average galaxy. Okay? And that there are at least 100 galaxies in known space. Einstein believed that we have scanned with our largest telescopes, only one billionth of theoretical space. This means that there are probably something like 10 octillion stars in the universe. 10 octillion. I never even heard of octillions before this week. That is 10 followed by 27 zeros. And Dr. Porter one of our resident scientists at the church, told me last week in Old Moat Park that the universe is still growing, but there's nothing on the outside of it. Uh. (laughs) I don't get that. Anyway, and I'm not playing in a trivial pursuit again. Ten octillion stars in space. A hundred billion stars in the average galaxy. A hundred million galaxies. And John says here, All of these stars were made by Jesus Christ. Along with everything else that has been made. And we sing these songs, Behold Our God. We need to take the lid off sometimes. Look up at the stars. What are we saying here? That this God became a baby. Wow. The Bible was unique in the ancient world because it taught that God created everything by speaking. The other creation stories always involved the gods having a bit of help. The Babylonians had a creation epic poem which has been found, and I've read it. It's really boring, actually. It's called the Enuma Elish. Apologies to any Babylonian believers here. In the Enuma Elish, there's a conflict between the gods 
And a mother goddess called Tiamat is killed by Marduk, who fashions the world from her corpse. So you need some stuff to make the world out of. Better kill a god and make it. And then um, Tiamat's co-conspirator, Kingu, not Pengu, right? That's a child's cartoon penguin. Kingu is killed in order to provide the material for the first humans. So you want to make some humans, better kill another god. Right, use that stuff, make some humans. And these humans are made to work in the world and to free the gods and give them a day off. Babylon is built as a city for the gods who celebrate their victory with feasting. Now, the the Hebrew Bible, Genesis chapter 1, was absolutely radical in the ancient world. Nobody else had a story like this. Nobody else thought like this. It said that God just spoke and everything that exists was created. Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Now the staggering claim that John makes here at the start of our journey is that Jesus Christ was the creator of all things. That baby who kicked around in Mary's womb for nine months and who looked around the stable uncomprehendingly, was also the one who made everything that there is. So what that means is that at a particular moment in history, the creator of the universe became an unconscious embryo, joined himself to the tiny egg in a woman's womb. Now the language that John uses here implies that Jesus was the creator in a kind of hands-on sort of a way. Um, Let me read it to you again, verse 3. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now, let me just try and unpack this. Think, Think about a statement like this that you might hear in the news. The Prime Minister made a press statement today. Right? Who is making the statement, youth group? Good. What about this sentence? The Prime Minister made a press, sta- a press statement through his press secretary today. Who's making a statement? The Prime Minister made a statement through his press secretary today. Who's making a statement? Both of them. The Prime Minister's making a statement and the press secretary is speaking it. But they're both involved, aren't they? See? Now what John says is that God made the world through Jesus. It's like God being the prime minister figure and Jesus being the press secretary. Jesus is the CEO. He's actioning things, making it happen. God's word creates the world. Now we know that God's word is actually a person. God the Father is the ultimate creator. Jesus is the hands-on agent. Nothing that was made was made without Jesus. He made everything that's been made. Now, finally, that follows that Jesus gives light in the world and life. The life that we love and enjoy and crave and want to go on and to to abound came through Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question. Who are you? It's a bit rude, isn't it? Who are you? I don't mean your name, but what, what kind of a creature you are? What does it mean to be you, to be a human? Here are two answers from a couple of scientists. Carl Sagan, who are we? We find that we live on an insignificant planet of a humdrum star. 
in a galaxy tucked away in some forgotten corner of the universe in which there are far more galaxies than people. Sounds like the beginning of Star Wars. Stephen Hawking. We are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star. But we can understand the universe. That makes us very special. Do you know, I agree with Hawking that we are very special, but I don't understand the universe. (laughs) So that means I'm not so special. That's a grand claim, isn't it? We are actually special because we've been given life by Jesus Christ. He gave life to you. He gave you your, your soul, the thing that makes you human. You're not just an advanced breed of monkey. You are made in the image of Jesus Christ. You're an eternal soul. And that's why we all know that human life is really precious. Every single scrap of it. That's why we have got personality and purpose. Because our life comes from a person who has purpose. Now finally, John is going to land a plane here. He's been circling for a while with these massive concepts. And he's coming into the runway. And he says, it's time to turn to Jesus' entry into our world, into history, with these dramatic words in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it or overtaken it. What he's saying is that Jesus, the light of the world, has come into the world and is shining, but he's shining in a very dark place. John here is recognizing that our world is dark, it's wicked, it's not as it should be. And if the newspapers from a single day are enough to convince you that we live in a very dark world. Why do children get bone cancer? But this darkness of this world has not overcome or overtaken Jesus. The dark world rejected Jesus, crucified him, misunderstood him, rejected him, pushed him out. But it did not overcome him. He was victorious. He rose from death. And the light of Jesus is shining in the darkness. Now I think that light means the knowledge of Jesus, the awareness that we have of him, the knowledge and understanding that we get from the Bible. And that is growing and spreading all around the world as every day thousands of people become followers of Jesus. Every single day. Every year they reckon over four million Chinese people become followers of Jesus. That's just China. This light that Jesus started, this little candle that was lit in Palestine nearly 2,000 years ago, is is growing and growing and growing. And it will grow brighter and brighter until the full light of day when he returns and makes all things new. Amen? Amen? Who is Jesus? In these few short verses, we learn his identity. He always existed. He was with God in the beginning, and he was God. And his activity, he made it all. And he gave life to humanity. And he's shining the light of his rescue mission, his salvation, to everyone who will hear, everyone who will see. Now to return, finally, to our big question of today, which is actually the big question of our lives. How is it that believing in Jesus gives me life? These things have been written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. How? How does it work? Well, let me just ask you to think again about the greatness of the cosmic Christ, one with the Father who made all things and gave all the life and light that there is. What happens when you believe in him? I mean, not just believe that he existed, but really believe and give him your life. 
You're not just given forgiveness of sins and taken to heaven. You're invited into that love relationship which God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have had since before the beginning of of time. It's been going on forever. You're brought into that relationship. Now that's life. Becoming a Christian, following and believing in Jesus, is not just being forgiven and then sort of airlifted out of a uh, grubby world like those guys from Star Trek, you know? Beam me up, Scotty. And up they go. Saved out of this horrible world. No, this is the guy who made everything that is. So he's going to remake it. He's going to make all things new. And our lives in the future, if we're followers of him, will be lives of abundance in a new creation. Rich has been preaching about it in January. So do you want life? Do you want more time? Do you want abundance? Do you want the kind of life that we all need? Let me ask, where else are you going to turn to? Who else is going to give it to you? Than Jesus Christ. Who else are you turning to at the moment? Where are you looking to for life? How's that working out? If it's not Jesus, I guarantee it's letting you down. It's sucking your life out of you rather than giving it to you. It's taking the light away from your eyes. It is false. He's the true source of light and life. So can you trust him with your life? Can you trust him with Monday morning, the week ahead and the challenges that face you? Can you trust him with your future? I think you can. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, who, whose time on this world is a little bit like the grass that grows up in the field today and tomorrow is cut down. We whose noses are pressed to the dirt much of the time have been granted this high privilege to read your word, written by the apostle, so that we may have life in Christ's name. So I pray now just one thing, that you would grant that to all of us here. Amen.